honestly, it was really cool. It was cool to see the different builders like working right next to each other. Cause there's like, whether this is good or bad, there's immediate comparisons, you know? So it's like, Oh, cool. You know, you can see how different builders do stuff differently. And I thought that was super fun. Uh, a little bit stressful, right? Because you know that everybody's watching, but to go from zero to a hundred that fast was crazy. I mean, I, it was a, a very unique experience. Welcome to Trill Effect. I am your host, Josh Blum. Trill Effect is a show that dives into the stories behind trails, the communities that embrace trails, and the people who are lion trails as a way of life. The goal of this show is to turn the stories you will hear from our guests into useful knowledge that can be applied to your community while providing some entertaining and inspirational content. Guests on Trail Effect include trail builders, board members, community leaders, volunteers, and regular people who really enjoy trails. Episode 123 features Adam Buck the founder and owner of Pathfinder Trail Building based out of Afton, Minnesota. Adam has done a lot of different things in the world of action sports, mountain biking, and trail building, especially on the gravity side of things here in the upper Midwest. Sit back and enjoy some of the stories that Adam provides and learn about some new projects that will be opening this spring. Cooley Creative is the title sponsor for this episode. They design and build custom websites as well as help companies with branding, photography, and e-commerce. Cooley Creative was started in Wisconsin, but is now based out of Bend, Oregon. Jared from Cooley Creative is a friend of mine. We've traveled together on multiple mountain bike trips, and sometimes he sends it. For more information about Cooley Creative, head on over to www.dudejustsendit.com. Yes, that's right, www.dudejustsendit.com will get you to the Cooley Creative website, so check it out. One of my favorite articles of clothing this past winter and now spring has been the Foley Zipper Hoodie from Kettle Mountain Apparel. This zipper hoodie is as functional as they come, yet offers the comfort of your favorite stuffed animal as a child. The people behind Kettle Mountain Apparel are mountain bikers, hikers, trail runners, and travelers. You can purchase the Foley Zipper Hoodie and all of the other fine Kettle Mountain apparel at www.ketlmtn.com backslash Josh or hit the link in the show notes and you'll be supporting the Trail Effect podcast in the process. I'd like to take a moment to thank all of the listeners and guests who have taken the time to share the Trail Effect episodes on their social media accounts, such as Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn, along with taking Trail Effect in their posts. This has helped a lot more listeners find the Trail Effect podcast. Please keep up all of the sharing, commenting, and tagging of Trail Effect. I'd also like to thank all of the listeners who have signed up to be supporters of Trail Effect through Patreon. These actions mean a lot to me. Now on to the Trail Effect with Adam Buck of Pathfinder Trail Building. Here we are today on Trail Effect. I'm Adam Buck. Adam is from Pathfinder Trails, Pathfinder Trail Builders. Located in the, I'm going to say the Minneapolis-St. Paul area because I think most people can identify with that. What what city exactly are you in out of those 5 million cities in that area? Yeah, so I'm we're actually based in Afton, Minnesota, which is, um, if you know where Afton Alps Ski Area is, our, our warehouse is like 10 minutes north of there. You can throw a rock to the border at that point almost? Yeah, we're one exit from the the border. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. It's a good place to be. I mean, for the area we work in, it puts us kind of in the middle of everything between Wisconsin and Minnesota and northern Minnesota and down, you know, the southern part of the Midwest. So, yeah. And there's a lot going on in this region. Yeah. Yeah. There's a ton going on in this region. Absolutely. And more on more on tap as as access opens up and plans come together. So let's get into your backstory. Kind of what led you into trails 
early on, and then we're going to get into some of your stuff that didn't have anything to do with trails at all, or maybe detoured into some whole different areas that are still really exciting. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, well, I think what kind of led me into trails, I was a trail runner before I was actually a mountain biker. So I ran through high school and college at a pretty high level. And what introduced me to mountain biking was some knee injuries from running actually in like the, like 1999. And I also had some like anxiety issues and stuff like that. And, um, I found that connection with nature and being able to go out and exercise and stuff is what really kind of like brought me to trails. And then it was, then it turned into like watching double down or the sprung series. I don't know if you remember any of that, you know, from the early two thousands or, um, like the fro riders and all those guys. And I had my room like plastered with posters and I have all the VHS tapes still, you know? And so like, I was a guy I grew up in Plainview, Minnesota, which is a teeny little town of like, I think maybe 4,000 now. And, um, I was a guy like jumping off the pagoda or the pavilion in the city park. You know? <laughs> so I wanted harder trails and in Plainview there, there were no trails. We rode lots of horse trails kind of in the, the trout Valley snake Creek unit of Richard J. Dorr forest. And some of that stuff is also ATV trails. And back then there were no clubs that maintained them. And so they were like fist size rocks through the woods, you know, they're old like skitter trails and logging trails and stuff. And what led me to more like official trail building, I guess, because what we initially started was all illegal was we actually, I reached out to the DNR for permission and stoutly got told no. And then they found all the trails where we were building. So through that, I kind of like sought out Imba and Minnesota off-road cyclists and stuff and got involved on that end. But I think I was like 15 or 16 when we were doing that stuff. And we were building like, you know, you watch like Dangerous Dan or Wade Simmons ride some crazy wood feature in a video, like Shift or something or the Neural Disorder videos. And we'd go in the woods and try to build it, you know? So like we had ladders like pounded up in the trees and totally, you know, stuff we probably shouldn't have been doing. But I think a lot of us started there. Maybe we won't admit it, but I think that's where a lot of trail builders start, you know? Well, what's interesting about that story to me is you went from running into the full gravity side of mountain biking. And one might assume that you would have maybe just taken, gone into XC mountain biking or, you know, cause at that point, XC mountain biking was much different than it is today in terms of like the distance. Now it's then XC was XC and now it's like ultra. Distance. Yeah. yeah. We, and we, you know, I did do some cross country racing. I raced like the Decora time trials. I did some of the Buck Hill races. I've done some of, um, I think now it's called the MMBS, the Minnesota Mountain Bike Series. I don't, re- I can't remember what it used to be called. It had a different name. Well, years ago, back in the nineties, it was like part of a tri-state series where it was like, and this, this is like early to mid nineties. It was like the Chi-Chi's Salsa series where you had like yeah. Iowa, Minnesota yeah, and Wisconsin as like a calendar. Yeah. And I, and so I raced, I raced some of those, my cross country coach. So like I, I was getting, um, recruited for running. And so my cross country coach hated that I was doing mountain biking, you know? And so like, I'd sneak off every spring and do like the decor time trial in the middle of like the training season for track and field. And in the fall I would go dip off. But, um, what my first downhill race, I want to say was the Westby white knuckle. And it's funny that? because I do remember it and I didn't, I didn't actually yeah. go to that. And that's 20 minutes from my house. Yeah. Yeah. And then it turned into the Platteville downhill. It kind of changed locations a couple of years. I think that's the first downhill race I went to, but I think 
running was so serious for me that I didn't want to race cross country. I wanted to keep mountain biking like a fun thing. And, um, I gravitated towards like going fast and stuff, super fun. You know, there's nothing not fun about it. And so, you know, I worked in some bike shops long enough to like get discounts to pay for downhill bikes and stuff like that. I mean, bicycle sports out of Rochester is where I got my first downhill bike and they'd never, I mean, yeah, they had like client mantras and stuff like that. It was like their bike. And then I ordered a specialized big hit, which, you know, the 26, 24, like the mullet bike of like 20 years ago, you know, and uh, they were like mind blown. They thought that I ordered a dirt bike, you know, it showed up and it weighed 52 pounds or whatever. You know? And uh, I just never had an interest. It, I, I mean, riding that like snake Creek and stuff, you're going up and down the Hills. But to me, having a downhill bike and hitting those water bars going 30 miles an hour was like the funnest thing in the world, you know? So we would struggle up the Hill and it was like me and my brothers and neighborhood kids would take our little pickup truck out there loaded with bikes and do 10 or 15 miles of just like lapping that one downhill loop they have out there. Yeah. It just turned into a thing. You know, we had, we had portable kickers. We'd load in our truck and in Plainview, the church has a, a sledding hill and we put like a big kicker at the top of the sledding hill and drag each other across the parking lot and hit this like portable wood jump and everything, you know? Um, but I would say I was, I was mostly inspired by watching videos. We don't, I mean, that riding just doesn't exist here, you know? Well, it does now, but it didn't 30 years ago. That wasn't, it didn't even 15 years ago or 10 years ago. Yeah, totally. And so, you know, I'd watch double down and be like, dude, you know, I can ride off this this picnic table pavilion or whatever. And it's an eight foot drop to flat, you know, like I, I wish I could tell you how many helmets I exploded jumping off drops to flat, you know, like full visor exploding off the helmet and everything from just woodpecker in the handlebars, you know, but yeah, it might be a, a weird transition, but I just think, um, that stuff is fun. Like free ride gravity, like not having to, like when you're run racing, you know, like I was at the point where I would have like my splits written on my forearm and I'd run by the clock and I could tell you like ex within a second of where I was, you know, I just didn't want to do that with cross country racing. <laughs> you know? Like, And in Minnesota, it's like a pretty competitive, maybe it's changed. It's been a long time since I've done it, but like watching people argue over first place at a race with 20 people at it, it's kind of like, seriously, dude, I mean, like it's that big of a deal, you know? <laughs> and so and I'm sure the scene has changed a little now, but back then I just wasn't into it. Like the attitude of people was too, it was too like racer bro kind of thing. You know, you're like, <laughs> I'm out here to have fun. You know, I'm not out here to, to beat you, you know? <laughs> so so I, I dabbled in cross country racing, but like I jumped over to the other side pretty quickly. Well, and it's interesting because like back in those days, you know, we're talking, I guess, late nineties, the only, I did some downhill racing then, and I was on like an old well, old now then would be a revolutionary mountain cycle, you know, yeah, like totally. a shockwave 9.5. Yeah. You know, and, and it yeah, was, totally. and I remember, you know, so Afton, there's always a downhill race at Afton. There's one up and I can't remember where it was up in Northern Minnesota. Well, was it Afton or was it at Welch? Well, so there was both, there was Afton as part of a Minnesota series, but then Welch and like, I want to say and in 96 Norba. and 97, they would bring the Norba XC race. Yeah. And so you'd have a national caliber XC race, but they didn't have, they didn't have the uh, enough elevation to do a national downhill, but they still held like a regional downhill in conjunction with it. And they did a DS too, didn't they? Yes. Yeah. Actually, that was actually one, that was probably the only place I ever did good at, at dual slalom. And I remember I bought like, 
you you'll remember these probably. Pan Racer had these spike tires. <laughs> And like you couldn't drive, you couldn't ride them on pavement because the spikes would like fold over and they're sketchy as shit. But when yeah, you're talking like the mud spikes, yeah. yeah totally. But on a grassy hill for with some bamboo ski gates pounded into it, they were perfect, and they stuck like Velcro. Yeah, totally. Yeah, that's like there's the famous uh, rock shot drops through the woods on the cross country course that like eight people alive. So like those are still, you know, in 2018, 2019, we did. We did some work out at Welch and we found them. They're still in there. Like that trail is, it's all covered with leaves and grass and everything, but it's like the rock shock drops are still there, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and like, it's sad that I'm old enough that guys in my crew had no idea what I was talking about. I was like, dude, these are like legendary, you know? <laughs> but yeah. Keeping it back in that era. And you, you know, you brought up Galena before we hit record, but that Specialized had a cactus cup there in like 1996. Yep. You know, which is obviously far different from what you guys have going on there today. And, and it, yeah. that was also pretty incredible. Yeah. Yeah. There's, I think people forget that there's like a, a pretty solid, there's like modern, the modern history of mountain biking in the Midwest, but people forget that in the mid nineties, late nineties, some of the races in the Midwest were like the highest attend races in the country. Oh yeah. And especially like the Wisconsin series. Like some of those races were like. They had the race trucks and semis and everything. And you could like meet world-class athletes, you know, that you're like, what are you doing in Wisconsin? You know, it's a bummer that that has left, but I think people forget that that all existed well before like the kind of modern trail boom in the Midwest, you know, I mean, yeah, like a cool thing, you know, Travis Brown used a race in lacrosse, a wars race in lacrosse at Bluebird campground as a warm up to the Olympics for like in like 1996. Yep. And like, I, you know, Alpine, I believe it was Alpine Valley. They elevated the the hill like a hundred feet with dirt to try to make it tall enough to do a downhill yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we tried. The Midwest is trying hard to make mountains, you know? <laughs> yeah. Well, let's go. And you've, you also had some other gravity stuff that you were involved with in that time frame, and kind of beyond that, let's kind of, let's kind of dovetail into that because that definitely led you to where you are today. Yeah, totally. So I, you know, when I, when I graduated high school, I had like zero direction in my life. I didn't really want to go to college and I ended up going to Duluth and, um, we would go ride spirit mountain and I think they call it the needles trail now. And I, I honestly think they closed it all because it was causing some problems, but that's before Duluth, that was in 2005. So like Duluth Traverse wasn't a thing riding, riding down Chester bowl was like considered super illegal, but that was like the trail to ride. There were no, there were no other trails minus like um, the Dirt Spanker classic trails on Spirit, which was like the cross country trails where the downhill stuff is now. And I went and met with, his name was Rich. And I think Denny was like the mountain maintenance guy. And we got permission of like, don't ask, don't tell to, to cut in a downhill trail. And so in 2005, we built a downhill trail. It's called the Green Man Downhill Trail. Like, I think it's still there, but it's been like they've modified it because they have other trails built in some of those like tree, tree islands. Um, but it was 1.3 miles long and we took a whole summer to build it like myself and maybe three other guys. And then we held the, it's called the green man downhill because there used to be the green man festival, which was like a kind of a hippie music, bluegrass music festival at Spirit mountain. And that, that kind of, I was amazed at that race. We actually got more athletes from Thunder Bay than we did from Minnesota. A crew of like 27 riders came down from, and I'll never forget. They brought, I'd never met them before. And they brought down 
you recognize the brand name Sombrio? Yeah. Which I don't know if they're still around or not, but back then they were like the free ride brand. And they brought me, and it wasn't available in Minnesota anywhere. And they brought me a full kit of Sombrio gear, you know? They're like, dude, go downhill race somewhere in our area. Here's all this stuff from the local shop, you know? And through that, I got connected with Red Bull. And that's when they kind of started supporting me and a lot of my projects. So I did that for a couple of years and came down to the Twin Cities. And I had, as Duluth is connected with tunnels, like Skyway systems and tunnels. And in talking to Red Bull... I was like, hey, I got this idea. I'd like to do like a race through the tunnels. I mean, the college campus is connected. And they were kind of like, well, you know, what about like in the Twin Cities? And so I actually called at 19 years old. I called RT Ryback's office and I was like, hey, you know, I want to hold a bike race in Minneapolis, you know? And they laughed in my face and hung up. And the guy at Red Bull I was working with was like, well, you should call St. Paul and tell them that Minneapolis laughed in your face. And so we called St. Paul and St. Paul's like, Minneapolis said, no, yeah, we would love to do that. That led down the path of like 13 months of planning for the first one. Cause like we, you know, it's uh, the Skyway system for people that don't know the twin seas are connected on the second level with these tunnels. So you don't have to go outside and they call them the, they call them the Skyway system. And there's 17 miles of Skyway system in St. Paul. So we picked a route that crossed the entire downtown St. Paul. And it was, uh, I think 1.3 or 1.4 miles. The first year was more kind of cross country-ish just because everyone needed to get comfortable with what was going on. Make sure we didn't like kill someone smashing through a window of a store or whatever, you know? And then the second year we got to include like some stair gaps and some built wooden features. But this is like, this is still at a time when people around here weren't riding features like that, except outside of like 20 or 30 guys, you know? And so we did those two events with Red Bull in 2006 and 2007. And in 2007, I started a nonprofit with a friend called Midwest Freeride Community. And our goal was to, we recognized we couldn't get downhill trails without a community or group of people that would support it. And we started hosting races. And so for three years, we had the Jolly Roger Downhill Series. And it was a Minnesota and a couple of races in Wisconsin based downhill series. You know, like every event promoter, we were like, well, how do we keep these fun? We can't, we got, let's get more than 20 people at these things. And so we did a King of the Hill downhill race where it was two up racing. So it was bracketed for the whole time. So like the winner did like 14 laps or something, you know, and then we did all night course where um, Red Bull hooked us up with a bunch of generators and we lit all the features and then it was mandatory helmet light and handlebar light. And we did most of those in Red Wing where we built two courses and our deals that we were working with clubs and cities was like, okay, we want to host this race, but these trails have to be open to the public when we're done. And so we would bear the cost of creating it all. And then the entry fees kind of compensated us what, I mean, what it could. None of us were getting rich off it, you know? And then we did one up at Giants Ridge. And that was like the ultimate goal was to get at somewhere we could build a course where like a downhill bike was needed. and. That, that trail is gone. They built, uh, I believe, part of Granite Gorge and, and uh, Goliath are built over the tree islands that that trail was in. And we, we lobbied to keep it. We were like, no, oh, no, don't build over the top. You know, you guys should keep those. But like, they were so blown out that like, you know, they were built in 2000, like eight and nine, you know, I mean, but those courses, you needed downhill bikes. And I, people were surprised when they showed up. And we used trucks to get to the top. They wouldn't turn the lifts on for us, obviously. They had no way to like 
load bikes. So we rented some pickup trucks and used those to, to shuttle riders up and down the hill. And we, we shut that down in 2010. The guy that was working on me a lot with Tony Benusa, he moved on to a, like a full-time career and I moved down to Chicago to work. I've been doing enough internal work for Red Bull that they brought me in-house. But prior to that, I was doing event production and film production for them. And so I had lots of free time because I was working on a gig, gig kind of work, you know, like we need Jen Longville to film Levi doing double backflips or whatever, you know? And so I'd, I'd be gone for six or seven weeks and then come back and work on bike trail projects or bike parks or whatever, you know, but as a hobby, none of it was, I didn't get paid for any of that stuff. You know, there's no money in event work really, unless you're like at a point where you have sponsors paying for stuff, you know? And so like, if anyone on here is an event producer, I give you all the credit in the world because it is not an easy job. <laughs> it's not. Yeah. And in there, like 2008, I was a board member on Minnesota Off-Road Cyclists and went out and represented Minnesota at the World Trail Summit at Whistler. And we just, yeah, just a bunch of stuff in there. I had the time that I was like involved. I've, I've dug on most of the trail networks in the Twin Cities, like whether it's their expert loops or their like feature zones or whatever. I even got up to Cuyuna and helped with some of the design and layout stuff like early on 2006 and seven, I think that was, but then I, I, you know, I kind of got burned out and I had that opportunity with Red Bull. So I went down to Chicago where they have a regional office and launched an event car program for them. Like the big, like the big blacked out army trucks you see relaunched that program in the U S for them and helped them design and create a couple more of them. And in that process, I got hooked up with Red Bull Media House and you name the sport, I've probably worked with it, whether it's like everything from surfing to the Red Bull Air Force guys to like we've had Seminick in Chicago, did uh, helped with Red Bull Dreamline, I think Dave spoke about. It was in Wabasha because I'm I'm from this area and that's like Red Bull reached out looking for locations and I was like, well, I know some places, you know, it's funny. It's like a small world like that, really. Up in your neck of the woods, we did wakeboarding in the cranberry bogs, up in Manitowish waters, the Red Bull Flute Togs, Red Bull Air Race, all that kind of stuff. We've been, uh, I was on the, the crashed ice build crew for seven years in a row, helping build the ice skate, downhill ice skating courses. And so I just, I've kind of worked with a lot of different, different things, you know, I don't know, like what, yeah. Well, the Red Bull, let's go to Red Bull crashed ice. Yeah. Cause that to me was super intriguing. Cause I've always, I've, I've, I always thought border cross is really awesome and about and skier cross as well. So why not put ice skates on people and send them, Yeah, send them we down actually, the same thing. And we actually rode it on studded bikes. Um, wow. I got asked to test run it on a, on like a studded, studded fat tire bike. We could have done it on any studded bike. It's fun. I don't think people realize that that build is probably like six weeks. I think is what we took to do it four weeks. And, but it only takes three days. Cause I mean, it's, it's a entirely refrigerated course. So you just, flip the switch and start pumping heat through it, you know, but it's a, it's a lot of work. It's cold. Making ice in Minnesota is a cold thing to do. <laughs> well, and that was in St. Paul also, wasn't it? Well, they had the one in Minnesota in the early 2000 or up in Duluth in the early 2000s. But then like the big official ones were in Duluth in uh, downtown St. Paul, right off the front of the cathedral. Yeah. Lots of like climbing around the scaffolding and dragging hoses around and laying down refrigeration and the weird thing in my event production world, I was kind of like a, like a hired hand sort of like in that world, we kind of, you know, you kind of have like your special operations guys 
and that's the crew that I was in where it's like, if there's any, any sort of problem or anything that was pretty specialized, that's what we got assigned to, whether it's like, you know, we need to hang branding on the side of that building, go get your ropes and hang the branding or go up in the scaffolding or build those jumps or, Hey, the generators aren't working. You need to go down and troubleshoot the generators or like the TV crew needs a zip line camera put up or whatever, you know? So I just, yeah, lots of background in that stuff. Those events are insane. I don't think people understand the amount of work that goes into those, you know, for like, and from Red Bull, they're typically free events, you know? So it's, yeah. It is, it is a ton. I got a glimpse into some of that world back in 2003 and four. I went out and worked event production, the basically with the award ceremonies and stuff and the stuff that was actually on the snow, not for the TV for Winter X Games. Oh, shit. And then also did the year they brought Great Outdoor Games to Madison, Wisconsin. Yeah. I coordinated all those. Like I stopped when we were in Aspen, like I stopped Sean White when he was like 15 or 16 years old from like, he was in the tent for before they go up to get their medals. And he wanted to like take a fire extinguisher and like blow it off everywhere. And I'm like, no, 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 you can't do that. Like, yeah. Right. Like, that's just make it, right? Wise decisions here. <laughs> oh, that's all time. I didn't know you did that kind of stuff. Yeah. That's, that's like, that's part of it, you know? And as that stuff became for live TV, the whole thing becomes completely different, you know, like live show or recording for NBC, like Red Bull signature series and stuff. It's like a whole nother like ball of wax, but a fun world to be in. But honestly, Trail building is like a quarter of the stress of like, it has to be done by this date. It doesn't matter if it's a tornado outside, <laughs> you, know, you have yeah. to get it done. Yeah. Yeah. That's what ultimately led me back to trail construction is like, I was getting so burned out. The event world is not like, I, I loved it. And I got to travel literally to every state in the US, but I just, it's not a healthy lifestyle. After a couple of years, it's not, I mean, I didn't even have a house. I had a storage unit. I was on the road 360 days a year. And it's just like one of those things where you're at the end of it, you're kind of like, all right, well, you know, time for me to move on. You know, like you just, it's just not fun anymore. That was in 2013. And that's, um, I hopped in a bulldozer for Cottage Grove Bike Park for six weeks. And I sat out in a field and just bladed piles of dirt, you know, just, and it was awesome. It was so chill. You know, it was like, no one bothered me. No, like, do whatever you want. It's got to match this rough plan, you know, but. Well, and that was at a time when trail building, especially where, you know, where we live in the upper Midwest was starting to actually like on a professional level, starting to take off. Right. You know, know, had just opened up. Yep. Imba hosted a, a, build workshop at that cottage grove bike park if i remember correctly yeah we so we helped organize the, yeah for the pump tracks i think yeah. the dirt pump tracks uh, one of those we paid for them now the uh the, um, spirit mountain was building then so i went up and did some video stuff with flow ride concepts the guys out of denver and then um duluth traverse was getting constructed then too like the very beginning of the duluth traverse was starting to happen yeah, yeah. and I, my unit was open minutes like the Twin Cities has always had a lot of trail kind of like we're really fortunate. Like we have hundred miles of single track here, you know, but like Lebanon was still here and the, you know, all that kind of like the Theo Worth was in the beginning stages of it progressing like further down the chain in the parks kind of over there and stuff. But yeah, that's kind of what led me back into trail building was just getting super burned out being on the road. <laughs> Which is funny because in trail building, you're on the road. <laughs> yeah right you know but you know you, you don't have a the same stress of having it to be on tv at a certain time on a certain day yeah and you don't have 
you don't have like some guy in an office telling you that like, Hey, this logo is hung wrong. And they haven't even been on the site. You know, you're like, dude, seriously, you're not even here. It can't be done any other way. Whereas with trail bunting, it's kind of like, yeah, you need to go through those trees. Just get them out of your way, you know, go through the trees, you know, and it's the creativity and you're out, you know, like connecting with nature, you know, it's like, it's grounding to be out in the woods every day, you know? Well, and much like I brought up with, with Dave, like now you're building something that stays. Whereas for those events, like you build it for the event and then all of a sudden it's, it's, it gets torn down like a day later. Yeah. And that's one of the things that really started to bother me at the end of my time doing event production, stuff like that was like, it's not inclusive at all. It's the exact opposite. It's like, is as exclusive as you can get? It's like, not only is it for athletes, it's for the best of the best athletes. And so like, you're stuck telling people no, and you're spending gobs of money. And then it's like, cool, a day later, it's completely gone. And, and I understand that some of that has to happen and stuff. But I think to me, the cool thing is to see people like get to enjoy that level of stuff without like the buy-in of like, oh, there's this huge corporate giant is like making this happen. It's like, no, it's here forever. Come and ride it today. Come and ride it tomorrow. Come and ride it next year. You know, it's still going to be here. <laughs> well, and there's a weird parallel. Like you're talking about the, the, the Duluth Traverse and a lot of that was spearheaded by Hansi, who you guys, while at kind of different stages in life and different at different ages, grew up probably like 15 miles from each other. Yeah, right. Totally. Because he's from Winona, right? He's from... uh I want to say he's from Pickwick. <laughs> okay. Well, <laughs> Obviously, he went to school in Ona, yeah, but Pickwick. Yeah, no one's going to know where that is except for the three of us, you know? Yeah, I know. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's all time. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it's, um, we got a strong scene for trail builders in the area, you know? There's a lot of good builders and, like, advocates from Minnesota. Yeah. They're like, there has been, yeah. Well, in Minnesota, and I've said this a lot, like, Minnesota, I think as a state was really early to the game in terms of getting state legislature legislators and especially with like QBP putting Gary Showquist in a position that he was in to really advocate for purpose-built trails, you know, which obviously then came Cuyuna and you said, you know, going to Cuyuna in 2006 or 2007, but it didn't actually open until 2011. Like a lot of people don't know what it, what actually was going on behind the scenes to get it from a concept to what is, what it is today. Yeah. Absolutely. I think people forget that a lot of that's like the the thing with like trail building that's funny and green space is people are super passionate one way or the other. Right. And so things take a while and and none of it's bad. It's just people are really passionate about their green space and they're extremely passionate about how that green space gets used. You know, so like to me, the funny thing about it is not so much that anyone's upset about the green space. They're upset about like, well, if you're going to mess with my deer hunting, you know, it's like, well, you're still enjoying the outside, you know? <laughs> and so you can't fault them for that because that's how they connect with the outdoors, you know? So it's like some of those projects around here, when you hear people opposed to it, you're like, wait a second. I mean, like you can still walk your dog on the trails. Like no, no, no one's, you know, <laughs> like, it's not like mountain bikers want to come out here and wreck that, you know? And so it's like a, that's like the weird thing. That's why things take so long. You know, we all want the same thing. We just want to experience it a little bit different way. You know I mean? <laughs> For sure. Well, let's get into Pathfinder and how you like, what kind of got you into the entrepreneur, entrepreneurial role of actually starting a company and taking it to where it is now, which is a PTBA member company. Yeah. Well, we, I had, I've had, I've started two other companies. I had a film production company and a event production company. So I've kind of, I've always had the thought process. If you're going to do something, you got to jump in with both feet and see what happens. 
if you commit yourself to something, the money will come, right? And so like, don't worry about that. Just go out and do a good job at what your goal is and be stoked with what you're doing and everything else will start to fall into place, you know? But from 2013 to 2017, I worked for a bunch of different trail companies kind of all over the place. And I just thought that, well, hey, you know, I got a way that I like to do it, which is what every trail guy thinks, you know, <laughs> my way is the best way or whatever. But I felt like I had a style of trail that I like to build. And I thought people around here would be stoked on it. And so, you know, we went for it and gave it a shot. And initially, I didn't even want to own an excavator. I just wanted to rent everything, you know, which that never works out that way. <laughs> and we, uh, I think we also lucked out with that, that northern Minnesota project on the Iron Range that, like, I had worked with a few of the different builders up there and the project managers or construction managers like Scott from Kaylin and stuff. And so, like, I found out about stuff and it just, like, worked out at the right time to, like, grow, to be able to grow a company and have the work to kind of support the growth. And uh, I've been really lucky at, like, who we've, who we've had on the team. I mean, we've had super good builders over the last five years. I mean, there's no, it's definitely not just me sitting in an excavator. We have, we have two to three crews usually. And, um, we've just got like some fantastic dudes that know how to build super fun trail and they just like being in the woods and on the road and riding bikes and building trails. Yeah. Let's talk about Northern Minnesota because, you know, Scott kind of detailed some of that with, with his show and he talked about how like there's, you know, there are some hiccups with permitting and whatnot. So at one point you guys had like every builder that was hired on the same piece of property building. And it yeah. was an insane amount of trail that was built in like what, two or three months or something like that. Yeah, it was nuts. So we started that project in the fall of 2018 and we started on county property. So the permits didn't apply to us. And so we were able to start work and we came back in the spring of 2019 and they were going through all the permit stuff. We were kind of like, Bummer for you guys. We're over on the county property, you know, or it didn't matter too much. Honestly, it was really cool. It was cool to see the different builders like working right next to each other. Cause there's like, whether this is good or bad, there's immediate comparisons, you know? So it's like, oh, cool. You know, you can see how different builders do stuff differently. And I thought that was super fun. Uh, a little bit stressful, right? Because you know that everybody's watching, but to go from zero to a hundred that fast was crazy. I mean, I, it was a, a very unique experience. We built, um, most of the flow and like jump trails at Tioga. And I think we're kind of known as like a dirt company, you know, as far as like the types of trails that we're, we're pretty dialed at working on. And, um, so we built a lot of the jump stuff and the skills based stuff. And then, um, like halfway through that build max from the city up there, Kind of talked to Scott about like, hey, you know, we've got a little bit of extra budget left over. The trails are built out. Let's talk to the builders. And we all got together. And that's kind of how the playground area kind of came about. There was stuff planned in that area, but it was more trail kind of based stuff. And we went up there. And I was like, dude, bike park, man. Why not? It's covered by trees. It's this beautiful area. And it's it's not like a gimme. You have to work to get up there. You know, people aren't just going to stumble into that. I mean, you kind of have to explore to find it a little bit. And so that, that was a super fun build. That whole project was phenomenal. I mean, I, the community embraced it. You got, you know, you got Peter at Arden up there and you have super active club members at Grimba and they, those dudes are crushing it. They've like, for having 20 
I think it's 25 miles of trail, like dumped in your lap. It took them a year or two to figure it out, but now they're doing great. Like those trails, if you go ride them, they're dialed right now. You know, they get trees cleared quickly and they've been dealing with all those wind storms last summer. And they just, the grooming up there is insane right now. They do grooming reports like every day out of that trail network. So I, I'm stoked for them up there. I think they're doing fantastic. Well, and so that you just brought up a, an interesting, an interesting concept or thought where you just said they had like 25 miles dumped in their lap. And yeah, yeah, totally. And I know that they were active as an organization, you know, a couple of years prior to that. Like, actually, this is another funny parallel. My ex-brother-in-law, he, he at one point was the president of Grimba. Oh, nice. And now he lives in Bloomington, <laughs> cool. so he's not in the area anymore. But he like hosted Hanzi like in a in a Imba presentation yeah. like in his garage at one point you know before and they had like the legion trails you know like mm-hmm. behind the school there i think they're called the legion trails yeah which are like old school hand cut with like log piles for features and stuff and those trails are still there and they're still super fun i mean they're completely different than what's at Tioga, you know they're just not built the same way yeah but yeah crazy right to to see them like I think they were overwhelmed at first. I don't know if they would admit that or not, but that was a lot to take a small group and be like, well, here's good. You have 25 miles of trail to maintain now. Here you go. (laughs) But they really like, they really tackled it. I think there was like some, there was a learning curve and everything, but now they're like, they're dialed. I think they're doing a good job, you know? Yeah. With that, what do you, you know, what say another club gets put into that position at some point where they, I don't know, are in Northern Minnesota. They have, you know, access of funding because of whatever, tax money was generated from whatever. And now this, all of a sudden they got a trail system bestowed upon them. Like, what are some things that you could maybe like give it pointers on and with like keeping it going and making sure this stuff, because one of the, I mean, the, honestly, one of the big things is weed whacking. Right? Yeah, totally. <laughs> so I think the way they do it is they divide like the trail segments and people, and I love the concept. It's kind of like um, what you see along the highway where you adopt a mile and they've done that with trail segments. And it's cool to see on their Facebook forums and stuff like, uh, so-and-so checking in just weed whack thrill seeker or just weed whipped girly Flynn or whatever all the different names are, you know, and you're kind of like, awesome. You know, like they're taking ownership, which is what you want. I think the crazy thing about trail building right now is it it's growing. The industry is growing so fast. It can't keep up with itself. Kind of is how I look at it. And I don't know if that's like what other people are saying, but there's so much new trail being built and it's fantastic. There's people running, riding, hiking everywhere, which is great. But the follow on infrastructure is the maintenance side, right? Of like, Hey, you know, how do we like, how do we take care of all of this now? I think if you can, if another group gets in that situation, set, setting aside, you know, like 10 or 15% of the budget and having a professional company bridge the gap, whether it's like, Hey, we'll come up twice a year with brush hogs and run through the whole trail network or, you know, after construction, you're going to have some spots that need to be touched up or adjusted. Like not every jump is going to work right the first time. It's just not going to, you know, or like, Hey, that rock garden's got a pedal catcher that like we should get rid of. It's like breaking people off, you know, or whatever that intersection doesn't work and we need to move it. You know, I think for that stuff, bring a professional in and let them do it efficiently with heavy equipment and get it done and knocked out and taken care of. Meanwhile, let the clubs slowly like ramp up their efforts to like, hey, this segment has some little water spots. All right, you guys, we'll help you identify them. You guys should take care of it or we'll coach you on how to take care of it. And like, I think part of it is that knowledge gap of like imparting on the clubs. Like you have the power to do this. You don't, we don't need to bring in an excavator to do this. Like four guys with shovels can do this. You know, like 
and part of that's like the builder the responsibility of the builders to teach, you know, like maintenance things and techniques and what to look for and, and that part of it. And I think Scott did a really good job with that at Grimba. We did, we worked with the high school team a couple of times and the club and like helped them pick out what tools they should have on hand. And they got a, a freight container that they've got with tools and everything. And, and I think that's like a big part of it is like the passing on that knowledge, you know, we do it every day. So I think we take for granted sometimes that like, Hey, you know, yeah, we know to run over to McLeod, hack it out quick before it's a big deal, but they don't know that. Not everybody does, you know. Sometimes the people you're getting to do maintenance a year ago are the people that they just rode. They didn't care if there was a, a puddle or if a corner didn't work. They just skidded their way through it and kept going, you know. And so I think it's like imparting that like knowledge and ownership onto the situation of like, these are years. This is your community's thing, you know, like you got to take care of it. <laughs> well, I think that model is probably the, the best I've heard so far. And that's not the first time I've I've heard it, but it's the first time I kind of heard it explained in the way you just explained it. Where the other example I have would be like at Fire Mountain down in North Carolina, where they on the on the Cherokee yeah. tribal land. And they have a contract, an annual contract with the original builder to come back in and do just that. Maybe it's twice a year they come back in to do stuff like that. But then they also impart their that contractor is also imparting that wisdom on on the local members of the community to do that. And I think that's something that whether it's a local land management a- agency, you know, say it's a park and recs department, uh, county forest, trail organization, whatever, to like, we have a say $200,000 budget or whatever for building this. Let's set aside 15 grand or 20 grand, you know, to, to get that done. And I think like part of that too, you know, from a builder perspective, I'm not going to make or break my year on a maintenance contract. So it's like, well, how can we help these people? Like part of my success is their success, right? And so to me, it's from a, even from like a business standpoint, it makes sense to train them, you know, like, cool, man, we want to be back to build more trail and not to take care of stuff we built that's not being taken care of anymore. And so to me, it's a big part of it's like, well, I want my work to look good five years from now. You know, like we, we need to train locals on how to like, how to do this stuff. And so like, we, we, um, when we meet with people, we offer that a lot of times, like, Hey, you know, if you want us to come back in a year, or if you want to bring guys out, if you have some guys that want to take care of this jump area, we just built you, you know, Wednesday night, send them out, send them out. I'll have two of our finished guys and a machine operator out here. And we'll kind of show you what we look at and what we're looking for. And, you know, fortunately I would say like 70% of the time we have people come out and like actively participate and, and learn at those places you come back three and four years later and it's cool to see how the original work has transformed a little bit to what the locals want. And I think that's, I mean, trails are, I've always thought that trails are like living, breathing things, you know, they, they change, they grow, they get old, they get rebuilt, they lips move, drops change, rocks are different. And I think that's what like keeps trails super fun. And if you can pass that ownership on to the locals, I mean, like that's like the perfect scenario, you know, I think that's awesome. Yeah. And I think, you know, pairing that with the trail adoption program that you had highlighted, it's, it was interesting. I was in Bentonville a couple weeks ago and I was talking to one of the builders for trailblazers, you know, the local, the local, I guess you could call it like kind of the local club there. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's a different, a little bit different dynamic in, in Bentonville, obviously. Yeah. But he would, he said that through trailblazers, they have one person that their whole role, which they can do this because they're a big enough organization for this is to manage their trail adoption program and it's managed through a GIS system 
and they have a lot of miles of trail, right? And so they only do a quarter mile segment at a time. So they have over 600 segments. Oh, holy cow. That's not how it is up in, <laughs> that is not how it is up in Grand Rapids. Well, it's a, and it's a different beast of an animal too, but to like actually like kind of show the magnitude of what is possible for managing, yeah. like you imagine having to coordinate 600 people? <laughs> Like, yeah. And that's, so that's like, they can like GPS ping, like, Hey, a tree's down in this segment. And they have these segments assigned on a GPS system uh, to like say Bob over here that maybe, maybe he, Bob yeah. lives in that neighborhood where that trail goes through. It's, you know, it's his quarter mile to maintain. Oh, that's unreal. That's unreal. So there's, there's another trail network here in the Metro that does a similar thing. Um, Car- Carver Lake and Woodbury. And that's Reed Smith. Who's just like fantastic trail steward there. And they've kind of created not an adoption thing. It's, I don't think it's anything official, but like each trail guy kind of has like that segment that they focus on. And when you talk to people that are doing it that way, it's like, it's mind blowing how well it works because it, it takes the stress off of like organizing, you know, I mean, you're not, if you take 20 people to a mile of trail to do maintenance, it takes like an hour. Then what do you do with them? You can't like remobilize them to a new place, you know? <laughs> so. If you get someone to take care, like say this, say they like this is their favorite trail or whatever, like they're going to take more ownership in that trail too. And so mm-hmm. when I first started weed whacking trails, it wasn't because, I mean, it was totally, I'm going to be honest, it was selfish. Yeah, totally. It's because I didn't want to <laughs> have all this stuff on me. The good thing <laughs> yeah. is everyone else that rides it gets that same benefit, right? Yeah. 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 That's, and I think like the thing, the other thing too with, when you look at trails, I think it's like, it's tough for a lot of people to remember that it's about, it really is about the user experience. And I think that that's true, whether you're a trail runner or a hiker or a mountain biker, I don't think it matters. If you have a poor trail experience, you're not going to go use the trails. Yeah. And that means that you're not going to support them either. And so my thing is like, maintenance needs to be part of the planning because it's, especially with how trails are being built now, if they're not maintained correctly, they don't ride right. People have a bad experience. And that's like, as a builder, I think that's something that you always got to remember is that like, Hey, you know, we got to make stuff that's maintainable. We can't make stuff that only professionals can maintain or like, what are we doing? I mean, like, and we're going to get to that part. We're going to come back at a point where it's so blown out that we have to rebuild it. And that, and is, and is that fair? I mean, is that like a fair, a fair way to look at it? You know, it's kind of like, so from a user experience thing, my thing is like, yeah, the weed whipping has to happen. The cleaning out the little water holes has to happen, making sure drains work, like making sure berms are shaped. To me, that's like, well, gosh, you know, if I take my girlfriend riding and she has a terrible experience because the trail's not maintained, she's never going to ride again. And that means that she's not going to get a bike. She's not going to travel to do it. She's not going to want to go down to the local trail place. She's not going to go to a bike shop. I mean, like the trickle down from that is can be pretty aggressive, you know? And so it's, I look at it from the standpoint, like you have to do the maintenance that has to be, that needs to be part of the planning. I think the other thing is people need to cut these volunteer groups some slack because it's a lot. It's a lot to be given 20 miles of trail and be told like, you're responsible for this million dollar trail network. You ready? Like two years ago, you didn't have this, but here's some rakes, you know, <laughs> good luck. And, um, and I think, you know, I don't, I don't know if it's like that anymore, but it definitely kind of used to be, you know? And so I think, yeah, to me, that's like, that's part of it. That was cool to see how well they grasped that at Grand Rapids and how they, or Cohasset and how they like tackled it head on, you know, and like work through the bumps. And there's some guys that were super volunteers for the couple of years, you know, and, but now they've grown a community around it and it's, they're, 
they're killing it, I think. I mean, maybe I'm wrong, but from the folks I talk to, they're doing a great job up there. No, I th- I think they are killing it. And you're right about the grooming too, because you see that posted on their on their Facebook page, especially. I mean, they're they get better winter than we do down here. So they can yeah, take totally. advantage of that. <laughs> yeah. yeah, absolutely. There, there's one other topic or one other point to this that I want to make before we move on. And that is a couple of years ago, I was out doing some trail maintenance at at Upper Hickson where I live. I saw a van. I think it it was like New Jersey or Pennsylvania plates on it and had some motocross stickers on it. And and I knew like being a, a fan of motocross, I knew that Millville wasn't that far away as far as time. It was like the it was like the during the week between whatever round was before that and then the Millville Motocross National and Spring Creek. Yeah, exactly. I grew up flagging there, man. <laughs> yeah. And and I've and I've I mean I've been to that race a, a bunch of I was at that race when when uh, Ricky Carmichael lapped the whole entire field when it was pouring yeah. rain. And that still gets talked about today. Like yeah, that totally. was a, that was a crazy race. That track is gnarly. You know, people get stuck there when it floods because all the bridges wash out down in that valley. The sand whoops that eat people alive. Yeah. Yeah. You can see that track, that track live. It's worth it. Oh, for sure. <laughs> yeah. So I talked to this guy in the parking lot and he's, and I asked him, I said, what do you know? It looks like you're, you know, you're obviously a motocross rider. I have something to do with the motocross because you don't put motocross bumper stickers on your van if you're not. Yeah. And I'm like, so what, you know, why'd you stop here? You know, cause out of state plates is like, oh, I'm in between the two rounds and I do, he's a, he was an event production guy, filmer for NBC sports. And he's like, I've driven through here before. And the reason why I stop here is because I know that your trails are always weed whacked. Yeah. And like, so he already had a prior experience of like, if I stop here, I know it's going to be maintained to a level of making it worth my effort to stop here and ride. And that to mm-hmm. me was like a light bulb moment of like, this is important to stay on top of this stuff because people notice it even if they don't live in your community. I mean, like what you're talking about, that's 100% user experience. And I think that's like, like you had Drome on talking about that. And I think that's like, I think we have to remember as builders that these trails aren't our trails, you know, like, yeah, we may have built the trail, but ultimately it's not my trail. It's for the people. Right. And that's, they're in public spaces. It's not like it needs to be taken care of. Like a baseball field is taken care of, you know, or a soccer field or a skate park or, and I think, um, that's going to be a hurdle eventually. Right. I mean, like volunteer gap and stuff like that. And I think that's where, the whole idea of like bridging it with professional help when you can and, and can afford to and more training and more education for volunteer groups is like a must kind of, you know. Well, and there's a uh, Tracy Paradise who we're going to have on this show after you. Mm-hmm. She's, she's the founder and executive director for the One Track Mind Foundation. Yeah. And I was on a phone call with her as like a, kind of a pre-call to set up the interview or the conversation. She talked about wanting to work with, always wanting to work with like youth core yeah. as that stopgap. So that's just another avenue. I wanted to throw that out there for listeners of like an, uh, another potential area where maintenance can also be supplemented. Yeah. I think youth core we've done, so we've done a bunch of work in Wyoming where we've worked with YL Corp out there. And it's the same thing. It's like, I want to say it's like first year freshman college kids, like 18, 19, 20, 21, you might get a 22 year old and you get them for 10 day stints. They've already been, the the crews that we got had already gone through like some basic trail, trail construction education, kind of. And then um, Three Rivers Park District gave us a crew this year when we were working for Tracy out at Monarch Trails in Victoria, Minnesota. And um, 
they, they need some guidance, but they're kids, you know, like they're going to need some guidance, you know, but they're, they're young and they're willing to work hard, you know, and they're there for that experience. I think that's a great, a great place to look for that kind of help. I think that I think um, with NICA or it's not Nike on Minnesota, it's MCA in Minnesota is looking at that group from like a, a trail industry thing. You got these kids that are getting introduced to mountain biking at a young age. How do we keep them in the mountain bike industry, whether that's in trail construction or bike shops or becoming engineers at a bike brand or, you know, and letting them know that trail construction is a trade and a pathway to success, you know? And so I think that's some stuff that we've been exploring as far as like, okay, well, like we got all these kids, you know, they need jobs. <laughs> how do we, how do we put them to work? You know? And I think that's all stuff that's going to get more and more developed as those, as those are around longer, you know? Oh, for sure. But yeah, the youth core, the youth core can be hit or miss <laughs> yeah, for sure. Well, let's uh, do a full 180 on this topic. Yeah. We'll get, we're going to flip to the, the pay to play model, which is because uh, you've yeah. been involved with some uh, lift access stuff, yeah. because I think you know, the experiences that you maybe can't or shouldn't get in a public space, you can get in a private space because they have, at least potentially would have the revenue to pay crews to not only build, but also maintain. But you know, like your newest stuff is, I think is in Chestnut down in Galena, but let's talk about that model, generally speaking, in your opinion. Yeah. So, uh, so at Pathfinder, we've worked at all the lift access resorts in Minnesota and we're working down in Galena, Illinois at Chestnut Mountain. And um, the pay-to-play concept is a tough thing to bring up because a lot of people, like mountain bikers are lucky. And it's not only at ski resorts where I think this is worth being brought up. I think, you know, in Minnesota, like I'm a cross-country skier. I have, in the Twin Cities, I have four different passes I have to buy every season to go ski where I want to ski. And that pays for grooming and the snowmaking and the lighting and the, what, you know, the trailhead facilities and the warming huts and whatever. And I think even in the Metro, you have to buy horse, horse passes for the places that allow horses. And we've skated underneath the radar on a lot of that, you know, there's a point where if people want a certain experience, it does cost money to do. I mean, it's not like building trail is not always a super it's cheaper than a baseball field, you know, when you look at like return or whatever, but still costs money. And so, you know, as someone that's on the paid side of the side that gets the money, yeah, I think being able to go in and help these groups build what they're asking for, if having that pay to play model helps with that, I don't understand why people are so against it. Um, But then the other side of me is like, yeah, it's public park. I get it. You know, like, I don't want to pay $5 every time I go to a trailhead, you know, and in a, a state of Minnesota where like there's cities that have trails, there's counties that have trails, the state has trails. Well, who do you pay? Is there a statewide pass? Is there state of Minnesota pass, a DNR pass, a state parks pass, a county pass, a whatever trailhead pass, you know, but I think at ski resorts and stuff, those facilities are expensive to run. There's just no two ways around it. I mean, between staffing, power to run chairlifts, power to turn everything on, the insurance cost, which is only going up, that stuff costs money. And in 
a lot of places you can build stuff you may not be able to build in a public space. Although I think that's starting to change. And I think that those are starting to kind of meet. But a private place still offers things like uphill shuttles, beer and food. There's stuff that they will always have that a public place probably won't. So, I mean, I would say that I'm, I'm for it in a lift access sense. I think pedal parks in the Midwest make a ton of sense. I think that's something some of these ski resorts, if they're nervous about the chairlift aspect and everything, I think with e-bikes and like smartly planned shuttle routes, yeah, people will pay 10 or 15 bucks to go be able to ride big jumps and gnarly features and crazy rock gardens and, you know, stuff that you might not find in a public park in an easily laughable. I mean, it's created with the idea of like, I'm not going to make you ride 10 miles to get to a jump trail and call that a qualifier. No, you're, we're going to get you to the top. You're going to get to ride a jump trail. There is no like weird hang up with stuff, you know? And so I, I, for one, think that like the pay to play model isn't a bad thing if you can figure out how to like make it work. And I think when you look at e-bikes, they're 12 grand. If you can afford a $12,000 mountain bike, you can probably afford a $10 pass or a $20 pass or you know, like what spirit mountain 35 bucks, I think. And that's actually pretty cheap. Totally. And so my thing is like, if you can afford a $12,000 downhill bike, you can probably afford the $35 pass to use it. <laughs> and so like, that's my, that's my take on pay to play. And I don't know if it's, everyone has their opinion, you know? I mean, there's, and there's the, the equity thing too. Like, obviously I think if, if the issue is getting, you know, being, getting, being equitable about getting more people involved, like there's probably a program in place or we could, or a pro program could be put in place to make it more equitable for people that may be disadvantaged in whatever way that is. I, I bring up this example almost every time we talk about this, which is Ride Canuga, which is in Pisgah, North Carolina, right? So there's a ton of mountain biking there that's free yeah. because of national forest stuff. And even, even when I had Nico on the show, you know, he, when that concept was brought to him about building Ride Canuga, he's like, well, who's going to pay to ride the, it's a, it's a pedal up shuttle park. It's not, there's no real shuttle there unless you have an e-bike, that's your shuttle. Or unless you're Nico and you have someone to drive you up on a <laughs> UTV. Side by side or something. Yeah. yeah, totally. I think like the thing to remember with that though, is that if you bring it back to user experience and it's national forest or national park, which is supposed to be like our highest park thing in the country outside of biking, something, someone has to pay to keep it at that level. You know, I mean, like there, there has to be like a fund source for that. There, I mean, like money doesn't come from nowhere. You know? No, That's like, it's a, it creates a vacuum, you know, I don't know. Yeah. Well, and it, and it works in Pisgah because of that user experience again, cause it, where else can you get, you know, jump lines in Pisgah? And it works so well that after a first, after a year of Canuga, they went and opened, they went and bought land and, and opened up another one 30 miles away. Yeah, you know, totally. which which has a shuttle route, and now is actually as of this week it was announced, which is Ride Rock Creek. It opened in December, and it's going to host U.S. Nationals for the Gravity USA Cycling stuff for 2023. So it went from like they bought the land, and not even a year later, it's hosting enduro and downhill racing. Yeah, that's. I mean, and you're kind of there's kind of like some line blurring there too, if, if whether it's being created as an event space or as a public consumption space, you know, but. That's the, I, I mean, it's tough. Like the tough thing is in the Midwest, we've been blessed with land access, right? Like whether it's in the UP or Wisconsin, which is really coming around in the last two or three years or Minnesota. I mean, 
they're different styles of trails in the mountains, but our mountain, our access to green space for bike specific trails is insane in the Midwest. I mean, like you can ride just about any kind of trail you want in Minnesota. We don't have 1200 foot descents or 2000 foot descents, but we have downhill trails that are good downhill trails. We have cross country trails that are purpose built, super fun cross country trails. We, I mean, we have the tech stuff. We're starting to see more features in the metro area of the Twin Cities and stuff. And I, and so it's like that thing of kind of like that isn't all that stuff isn't always built by volunteers and it isn't always free, you know. And so like the pay to play thing to me, that's like a tough, that's a tough one. I I get it, you know. I would pay. I mean, yeah. that's my thing. And my opinion is that I would pay because I when I go to a trail, I don't want to ride trails that are all blown out. Yeah. I'm not interested in that. I mean, like if I go for a trail run, I pick the state parks that I know they take care of their stuff. I don't go to the ones where it's like you're getting face slapped for the entire 20 mile run or whatever, you know, that's like, to me, it makes sense. If I know that it's funding someone to pay to like go through and weed whip mow and fix, fix stairs or blown out boardwalks or wet spots or whatever, you know, cut deadfalls off or down or, you know, trees that are blown down off the trails. Yeah. I mean, like in Minnesota, we have like the border route trail, we have the spear hiking trail and those are like nationally recognized like through runs and stuff like that for like fastest known times and whatever. And there's some of the most technical trails in the country and they're managed by volunteer groups. And like, to me, that's mind blowing that a two or 300 mile long trail is managed by volunteers. The Appalachian trail, Appalachian, I'm sorry. I I pronounced it wrong. Yeah, totally. So yeah, those are volunteer. I'm just saying ones I, that I've been on and I know, you know, I mean, like I've been on the border route trail. I've been on some of the ice age trail. And to me, it's like to know that most of that is managed and maintained by volunteers with hardly any money to me is like, come on, you know, we, we support all this other stuff with ridiculous amounts of money. Like, why can't we do some maintenance stuff, you know? And that's why the pay to play thing to me makes sense, but not just for mountain bikers. I think to me, it's like, if you're using our parks, and you want them at a certain level, well, then, I mean, that costs money. Yeah. And there's no way around that. We're, we're going to spin this around again. People are going to be like, these guys are talking pay to play, not pay to play, volunteers, not volunteers, free parks, not free parks. <laughs> and we're going to go to the park that you just built. That's going to be, I think it may have had a soft opening. It's for sure going to have a grand opening this summer, this spring, which is Monarch and Carver, which you brought up a couple of times in the Pathfinder yeah. playground and that's why I'm bringing this up as the, as the Pathfinder playground concept and kind of to yeah. dig deeper on that. Yeah, totally. So we built our, the first Pathfinder playground got built at Tioga and it took a while for people to like get on board with, with the idea of it all, but it's, it's open and running really well. And we kind of ran with that. We've done another one up in Alexandria at Brophy Park. And right now we're doing the Metro's first kind of playground area. And Tracy is from One Track Mind is the, kind of the person funding that in conjunction with three rivers park department. It kind of came about Jay Thompson, who is like the trails are for three rivers parks. He's like the head maintenance guy. And so he manages Elm Creek Carver. Well, it's not Carver Monarch, which is in Carver park preserve. And then Murphy Hanran. Um, so that, you know, he's managing, I think it's like, I think it's 60 miles, a single track. He approached, approached us a couple years ago, just, Kind of like, hey, you know, I think we're going to try to do some upgrades to this trail. Are you guys available? We'd really love to work with you. And um, that led to some meetings with him and Tracy and park management and stuff. 
And we kind of did some trail assessments and went back and looked at the Paradise Loop, which is their expert zone. And we were kind of like, well, there's not a whole lot of expert stuff out here. Like we should like, let's make this like legit expert stuff, you know, like, and I'm a firm believer that standards in the Midwest need to do a better job of matching standards, other places in the country, because we're propping people up to get destroyed when they go to other places. Yeah. Like our scale skews so heavy, the wrong direction that like, yeah, cool. You can ride a black or expert level rock garden at Lebanon Hills is like a green rock garden out West. I mean, they're not even close to the same, you know? And so we've really been pushing that. We did it up at Giants Ridge with a jump trail we built for him. We kind of like, we pushed everything. And then we were like, yeah, this is a blue trail. You can roll everything. (laughs) Took a little bit of convincing, but we've been kind of like, we've been pushing that thought pretty hard at land managers that like, look, you know, a two foot tall jump that's really dangerous doesn't make it an expert jump. It makes it a jump that was built wrong. You know, like that's the, that should be a beginner level jump. That's the size it is. It's just not built right for a beginner. And so we kind of approached it with this this thought process of like progression in the Twin Cities is pretty low. And greater Minnesota has this insane amount of trail that is some of the best in the country, right? Between Cuyuna, everything along that northern tier above Cuyuna from like Alexandria to Detroit Mountain to Tioga to Redhead to Giants Ridge, Ely and Split Rock Wilds. You have like pretty solid path of trails across northern Minnesota and the progression's insane. You have pedal bike parks, two gravity fed bike parks and like 80 or 90 miles of single track, all purpose built. And when we sat down with the parks department and Tracy, we were just kind of like, hey, you know, like we think we could re-envision this expert area to like offer stuff to prepare people to become better riders. So when they leave, leave the Metro, which they're probably going to, they can experience those other trails in a better, a better light, right? Cause there's, we're lifting the skill level of the entire riding community. So we built that expert and then we're going back through the rest of the trail and we're adding green and blue alternate lines throughout the network. So that like when you enter the main trailhead, you can't, get back to the paradise loop and be like, Oh, I didn't realize that I was on expert trail because you've crossed through. Like there's essentially squirrel catchers through the entire trail network. So you're naturally progressing your way into the expert loop at the back. And for people that want to, we moved a horse trail and the old horse trail is now the direct access into the playground area. So that like we're addressing the people that already are expert riders and want to ride it. And we're also making sure that people that want to go out and charge the laps we built a bunch of up and overs and everything. So the, the through trail that was already there is completely on un, uninterrupted. You don't have to like watch out for weird intersections or um, you can just keep charging straight through on your rigid 1.9 inch tire, like super bike, you know, <laughs> all the Enduros we dropping it off the star tower, you know? And so it's unique to the twin cities. I don't, you know, there's a lot of stuff down in Arkansas, like it, you're seeing some stuff pop up out West and out east. But the Midwest kind of in particular the Twin Cities Metro really lacks like true aggressive and progressive trail. And um we've been using the the playground model and concept as a way to like, okay, cool. You can't, you don't, you know, I I think bike parks and open fields are stupid. I think they're impossible to maintain. They're a grassy, muddy mess. And around here we get gully washers. And so like cool, well you just washed all your clay off. And so we've 
been presenting the concept of like, okay, let's rethink your expert area. Let's build it into trail lines. And I don't, for me at a bike park, I hate the idea of a single drop. And that's like the thing you go over there and you're like, cool, I hit one drop. Okay. And now I move up a foot and hit another drop. And so we're creating our lines where like you drop into a drop line and you're going to ride a one foot drop, a two foot drop, a four foot drop, a six foot drop. Some are mandatory, some are optional, but you're going to have to ride jumps in there. You're going to have to ride berms. You have to ride rollers and start teaching that the skill of like reading a trail, you know, like great. If you go to a bike park and you get comfortable on a drop, that's fantastic. But then you have to transfer that to, you know, like say split rock wilds, for example, or Tioga, where you're going 30 miles an hour down the trail, you have to navigate the trail and the drop. It's not just the drop. Right. And so the concept with the playgrounds is to create longer, longer ride lines that incorporate all the skills instead of just like, cool, I hit one drop. Oh, I hit one jump or I rode a skinny that's eight feet long and you're out in a field and there's no, there's no perspective to like, how does that skill translate to the trail, you know? And so that's what we're doing at Monarch. And I I think we're, we're shooting for a late May opening on that. It is not open to the public. (laughs) It has just a YouTube video for it. There is. Yeah. We did a teaser. We need to do, um, we need to put handrails on some stuff and there's a little bit of rock work left to do, but we got shut down by winter came quick this year. It did. We were pulling out of there in the mud pretty much like, Oh God, you know? <laughs> and so everything's fenced off right now and closed and it, and it will be till we have the, the handrails and the city needs to put in place their signage and, or not the city, the park, park service needs to put in their signage and stuff. No, I'm not super familiar with the, like I said, the 5 million other little cities within the greater yeah. Minneapolis, St. Paul area from a totally. North, South, East, West, like, is it North? of Minneapolis, like the core of it, South, East, West. It's, it's straight West. So like, do you know where Lake Minnetonka is? Yep. Just South of Lake Minnetonka, South and West of Lake Minnetonka. It may be, so I'm in Afton. So I have to literally cross the entire Metro. It takes me 45 minutes to get there. And so from downtown, it's probably like a 30 minute drive. Maybe they say like from like Bloomington, another community that people know well. Yeah. Bloomington is probably 20 minutes. Okay. Yeah. So not, not bad. It's, it's, it's a pop, it's already a very popular trail network. And so I don't, I mean, we tried really hard to make sure that we didn't change the flavor of what was already there. I'm like, I'm not in the business of like going in and wrecking someone else's work. We tried really hard to make sure that we were adding to what was there and not changing it. So people are like, what the hell It was this? And now it's this. It's kind of like, no, like we had, cause we added four miles of trails as part of the plan for like maintenance and trying to like increase some of the trail legs and take advantage of like other land they got access to. And so it is, we, we did add some like significant mileage to the overall, overall trail. But I like that you said that you also have a direct line into that playground because I think, and there's some, and there's some value to this, but that the, the model of the stack loop system where the, the black stuff is way out, like killing me with that. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like where you have to ride. And I think, and the reason why I say it is because I think some, it could discourage some beginners. Like if you got all these advanced people trying to get to the advanced place and you're blown by people that like, say you brought up your girlfriend or my girlfriend's a new mountain biker, you yeah. know, like she might get discouraged if she's got a bunch of people just blowing by her and it makes her feel kind of yeah. insignificant. Right. And I think sometimes this is my event background, like keeps clicking in my head. Part of our job, if we're going to build aggressive trails is to make sure that there's an emergency plan. 
And like, if we ignore that, we're doing a disservice to our own trade. Like if we ignore the fact that people can get hurt doing mountain biking as an activity, I think that's like, I think that's a really poor mentality of like, oh, well, they just, they need to be better riders. It's kind of like, no, if you're doing that kind of stuff, accidents happen. It's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. And from the moment we gave them that plan, we kept pushing on the horse trail because it's an old roadbed. We kept being like, hey, you know, yes, we could build an access trail here, but you already have an old paved road. Like ambulances need to be able to get back here. That's going to be the way they come in. Why don't you just make this, you know, why don't we work together, reroute some of the horse trail, put up a couple gates and let this be emergency access and event access and rider access. And in the construction, we blew in a couple corridors that we know they can get into with like their, um, their, they have like one of those off-road stretchers and a six wheel gator and everything. Like we made some corridors wide enough so that they can get to the bottom and they can get to like where we think there might be incidents, you know? And, and that was a big push from my perspective was like, dude, this is like, this is the first one in the twin cities like this. And it's definitely the biggest drops and stuff in the Metro and probably the biggest jumps from like a mountain bike perspective. And in the meeting with like the parks director and Jay and stuff, we were like, yeah, there's going to be crashes on this. I mean, we can only make it so safe. You know, they're all tabletops. They're all pretty mellow, but accidents happen when people are learning, you know? And so that was like the one thing that I get weirded out when people do the stack loop thing and want to put a double expert red pro line 20 miles back in a trail network you're like cool are we gonna make a helipad back here somewhere because like how are you how are you gonna extract someone when they break their back you know like, or if they break their femur or or just break their ankle and can't ride their bike you, i mean they can't be back there for eight hours while you go figure out how to get them i mean that's the and so sometimes to me I, the stack loop thing to me is like, I don't know. I don't, maybe you shouldn't have expert trails here then if you want to put it that far from the trailhead. You know? <laughs> I, mean, I agree. I um, I mean, medical emergencies happen. Yeah. Some people have heard me say this. I got extracted off of a trail here in 2021 because I was out doing some, I was crew leading and I had a, a tool in my hand myself and I hit a ground wasp nest. And oh. I didn't know that I was, and I may not have been allergic to bees at at that point or wasps, but I got lit up enough that I had a really bad medical emergency with, with no blood pressure. You know what I mean? And that wasn't even riding. That was like, you know, so, so just things happen in life, you know, and if you're going to introduce more people to it, the odds are something is going to happen at some point. Yeah. And, and, and like, and I don't like access is a good thing. I mean, don't, because like the, the flip side to it is if you don't give those riders access directly to it, they're going to make access directly to it. And that was one of our big arguments talking to the different user groups and the parks folks out there was that like, well, look, I mean, yeah, we can tell you that, yeah, we can build an access trail in here, but I guarantee you that people are just going to ride the road. I mean, like it's super straightforward. It's easy pedal, the parking lot's right at the end. Like, why am I going to ride two miles to get to something I can ride a thousand feet? And I'm like right at the drop in. And I think people recognize that it's just a matter of like how much arguing are you willing to like deal with from other people to change stuff, you know, but yeah, I, there's definitely some places where I'm amazed at how far you have to ride to get to the expert stuff. I mean, like, you know, do your plan so that there's another trailhead. Yeah. I mean, you know what I mean? I mean, like, it's like, yo, you know, there's gotta be a way to like make this all work for everybody. (laughs) I'll I'll bring, I'll bring ride Canuga up again. Like they have a green climbing trail, right? 
mm-hmm. and they have their service road, which can also be climbed. You yeah. know, I went there for the first time. I did, I think, two climbs up on the green climbing trail on my acoustic pedal bike. And then I'm like, <laughs> I'm going to see what this, how fast I can get there on the service road because it gets you to the exact same place. It's like three quarters of the distance or less because it's steeper, right? Correct. Yeah. And yeah. it's like, from that point on, I just, you know, I think the next day when I went back to Red Canoga, my first lap was on the green trail to warm up. But then I just did laps on the access road. <laughs> yeah, and that's another place that that can happen is Tioga because they have all the old haul roads. And so, like, to get up to that first hub, it's almost quicker just to ride the haul road. I mean, I know they really discourage it, but it's like, without gates, you're not going to stop people, you know? It's kind of like, I don't know, it's quick to get up there. <laughs> yeah. It's like, it's an old logging road. It goes straight up the hill, you know? I mean, it's like, you're at the top. And it, it literally brings you to the exact same spot as the climbing trail, you know? Yeah, for but, sure. Well, we've talked about quite a bit. Is there anything, and we did, we went pretty far off script, which is, which is totally fine. Yeah, totally. We got to hit these other ones quick. <laughs> no, <laughs> no, but is there anything maybe, well, maybe we could hit the whole, you know, you're a, we kind of, well, we've kind of interwoven this in anyways, but you're a PTBA member company. You know, is there any, is there any trends that you're seeing good or bad? you know, that you think things are going or maybe a direction you want to see things going. But like I said, we, we've kind of already hit on some of this stuff already. So I don't want to sound like a broken record. Yeah. 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 I think the cool thing right now in trail construction and, and the, like, and just the outdoor world is there's been this explosion. There's people on bikes everywhere. And I think that's awesome. Right. And with that, the trail construction industry is really growing and there's lots of good. And then there's some, there's definitely like some learnings and some things that'll get ironed out as it becomes, I don't want to say more professional, but as it becomes more of like an established trade. And so like, I'm excited to see how that goes and where it goes. I think in the Midwest where we have so much trail, I really love the fact that I can bring up the idea of like, Hey, you know, let's not focus on quantity. Let's focus on quality and people take it seriously. Right. I think 10 years ago, people were just excited to have trail. And um, I think the idea of the user experience being more important than being able to say you have 20 miles of trail is the best thing that could ever happen to mountain biking. I would rather ride six or seven miles of badass, super fun trail with all these different experiences than 20 miles of the same thing for 20 miles, you know, just for the sake of 20 miles or whatever. And so I'm I'm excited about that part of the of the trail building industry. I think like quality is becoming much more of a focus rather than quantity. And that presents some of its own challenges, but I think like the trail world's like navigating it pretty well. You know, I think like the trail industry is like it's it's growing, you know. And I I like it's exciting. It's fun to watch what other builders are doing and getting inspiration from that and then being able to like contribute our stuff to that same pool of knowledge and see where it goes, you know? Yeah, for sure. And you're spot on with the quality thing. I mean, I'd much rather do laps on a really high quality on even one high quality trail. Yeah. And it might get boring after a while, but it's still like quality is, it doesn't get boring nearly as fast as a mediocre trail. Yeah, totally. You ride once and you're like, why did I just do that? (laughs) Yeah, totally. And I think like, and there's, and I'm not saying that there's not a place for like long, long rides. I think those are just as important, but I think like the idea, if you're going to drop in a 20 mile trail network, that it need the whole thing needs to be an experience. It can't just be 20 miles of the same thing. And I think like, and I think that's, what's cool. I think that's, what's going on right now. I think 
trails are being developed from a much more like holistic approach of like, okay, you know, here's where there's going to be the jump trails and there's going to be some tech trails and here's your crazy climbing trail and here's your race loop. And I think like looking at stuff from that holistic perspective and then building it that way is awesome. Yeah. Well, I'm excited to see, you know, what, what's going to be on tap for this year for Galena and Chestnut, because that, I think that's the closest lift access that I have to my house, at least, you know, maybe it's not, I mean, actually driving up to spirit isn't a whole lot further, but this just seems a lot closer. It's, I think it's about two and a a half, three hours for me to get there. And we went there, my girlfriend and I went there the last day of the season in October. It was kind of a, I'm glad I brought some extra clothes because it was a, it was a colder day. It was windy and it was the middle of October. And I think it was actually warmer and nicer the following weekend. Oh yeah. How, how, how did she do on everything? You said she was a newer rider. Yeah. She's a new rider. Yeah. It's, so it's funny because she just started mountain biking last summer. It was a trip that we took to Chattanooga, Tennessee. Oh, cool. And I we're the same height. So I could put, she's got longer legs though, but I could put her on my bike, which is one of my bikes, which is very convenient, yeah. you know, just raise the seat a little bit and here you go. And Put her on a green trail at, at White Oak Mountain, I want to say it is, or Oak, I think it's White Oak. It's on a seven-day Adventist university campground, kind of just, or university campground, university campus, just south cool. of Chattanooga. That was day one. Yeah. And day two, we went to Jared's Place Bike Park. <laughs> <laughs> Jeez, man. <laughs> Which was uh, 45 minutes south of there. Yeah, she's still my girlfriend. <laughs> yeah. And here's my logic. It's, this was really sound logic, okay? Yeah. <laughs> they just opened like three weeks before that. I'm like, we're not, cause we were there for a, a one of her, a family member of hers wedding. Right. Yeah. I'm like, we're not going to Chattanooga and I'm not going to be 45 minutes away from this brand new bike park <laughs> where I have a day of like being able to ride and not go ride there. And so I figured we'd teach her braking and how a dropper post works and stuff like that and yeah. whatnot the day before. And then we went to Jared's place. I'm like, okay, they have two green trails on their trail map. And that means we can, and with the shuttle, they have, they have what, I think 900 feet of elevation at that place, but the shuttle drops off around four or 500 feet up. And so you have to pedal the other four or 500 feet, which is really incredible. If you have an e-bike, I didn't, but it's a steep pedal. Yeah. <laughs> but so we just, we're going to do shuttle apps. Cause I, I figured I'm going to take the, one of the tougher parts of mountain biking out of the equation, which is the climbing part. And she can just, you know, lap on a green trail and just get used to breaking and cornering and and I, I mean, we'd never been there and it was, it was not as green as we have for green standards up in the upper Midwest. <laughs> I would say it was blue green. The trail was aptly named double green, which I took as blue, kind of like yeah, a double diamond. Totally. Right? <laughs> but she really enjoyed herself. She's really happy that I gave her knee pads. Yeah. And she still liked it a lot. I mean, she likes challenges, which is good. And, you know, from that, she bought her own mountain bike. And, and so... Cool. You know, she did laps on the green trail. I can't remember what it's called, but the green trail at, at Chestnut. And I think yep. I took her on one, took her one time down the blue trail, which she yep. comfortably navigated, but then went back to the green stuff. And pretty, yeah, we're going to yep. go to Battenville in a week or two, two weeks to then cool. do some more. Cause it's, I mean, it's still winter up here kind of. Yeah, absolutely. Really just to get on some more green stuff earlier in the year than we would be able to up here. Yeah. So on that finger that those two trails went down, we're going to do three more green trails and then two to three more blue trails. And that's what's going to get built this season. And the idea is to like, you know, there's that green down trail. It's kind of just a flow trail. We're going to put in an actual like green jump trail and then like a green downhill trail and a tech trail. 
And there's like the terrain down there is it's cool. There's it's some like, freaking big rocks. Yes. Like the bluffs and stuff there are no joke. So it's like that first year we learned a lot just cause like trying to work, work through it. It's, um, it has really good elevation, but it's very vertical. And so like, you know, trying to work with rocks that are also trying to crush you is kind of a tough thing, you know, but on that green side, the cool thing about there is there's lots of room for like beelines. And so I think we're going to get those main kind of arteries in and then start draping like some more advanced uh, alternate lines into everything. Yeah. I'm excited to get going there this year. It's going to be cool. And they're, I mean, they're, committed, they're committed. So it's, it's a three to four year plan that we're on with them. So it's, they're going to keep getting new stuff for a couple of years. Well, and what I like about, about that place specifically is that they're already a four season operation. Yes. You know, so they have Segway tours, they have a mountain coaster, they have a, they have like a, or an Alpine slide, I should say, which was and they, yeah, they have like a zip line thing. The Alpine slide was the awesome entertainment for uh, the ride back up. Cause the lift goes right <laughs> over the top. Yeah. And we did see more than one person actually come out of the <laughs> Alpine slide. <laughs> that is, that was a really green experience for some people. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think like in, in the other thing to remember about Chestnut, it's like 30 minutes from Dubuque mm-hmm. and there's the proving grounds, which we built. And then there's, yeah, we didn't even talk about that. Yeah. And then there's IPP, which Chad Landowski built. And so there's, you know, Galena is a super cool town and then you can jump over the river and you're in Dubuque and they have like some fantastic trail networks over there too. So there's like, there's a weekend worth of riding in that area. And I, and I know the club down there is adding more and we're adding more in Galena. And so it's going to slowly, like the terrain down there is like mind blowing how it's a beautiful place. And so like, it's a place that you could go and spend a day riding, go to Dubuque, spend a day riding and then spend a day like farting around on the river or there's um like mines of Spain. There's like super good hiking down there. There's a couple pretty good ultra races down there and stuff. There's other stuff to do there besides just biking. And I think that's what makes it like a good destination. I mean, like there's, it's not like you go there and it's bikes, 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 you know, there's bikes, there's the restaurants pretty good at the resort. And then Galena has some really good food. And so does Dubuque has a couple of like cool breweries and some good cross country trail that has like the stuff Chad built is crazy. It's like his stuff's always cool. And we built some jump trails and bike parking lines and like a super tech cross country line. And so I think there's like 12 or 15 miles of trail in Dubuque between those two networks, plus the stuff in Galena. So it's like, I don't know, it's a good, it's a good place. It's it's like a cool, a cool zone. Well, and from a business perspective, I, I believe in the winter, they draw quite a few people from Chicago they do. last over to that. So it's, it's also, you know, and that's, that's something that, you know, ski resorts or winter resorts are, you know, they have to start thinking about four seasons more because yeah. winter for some reason it seems like it gets getting longer on one end it doesn't i think overall it's not quite as long as it used to be yeah totally they're just closing this weekend this year yeah this is their last weekend of snow so i think we were kind of pushing them to find out when they wanted to turn the chairlifts on but they have to do like some lift testing and stuff this year they're like set for their like on chairlifts there's so much testing that has to happen that's kind of like out of people's control it's just part of owning the lifts and so i think end of may or beginning of june because they have to do like they have to do like some drive tests on the lifts and everything which is like a safety thing so you want them to do that you know oh for sure but i think our hope is to have a bunch that ready to go when they when they start spinning the lifts again this season well and now they have trays they are i think last year they couldn't open up early enough because they didn't have all the trays they needed and they probably could actually use more trays 
they're going to add, they are going to add more trays. They're working on that right now. You know, yeah. but that was, I think the biggest hurdle for getting it spinning, you know, late, they what open late September, early October, I want to say mid to late September. Yeah. 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 So. They were, and they were like dealing with like getting them onto the, they want to make sure they're doing it. The cool thing about Galen, uh, Chestnut is they're like, they're committed to doing it right mm-hmm. with the equipment they have, you know, they don't have a fixed grip. Or, or I'm sorry. They don't have it. They have a fixed grip. They don't have a detachable. They have a, a detachable. Yeah. So they have some hurdles they have to figure out because like they have the speeds have to be set and everything and the on off ramps need to be certain sizes. And as you saw, like that chairlift is like a tower in the sky. <laughs> it's like, and so like the deck they built underneath, it was this pretty big structure and everything. And so like there, but it's cool to see them committed to it. And the resort is literally, if you sleep there, you're like 10 feet from the trailhead or yeah. 20 feet. I mean, it's like literally right there. So I, it's a cool, it's a cool place. I think they'll, I think they'll find success. Yeah. Yeah. And I know their, their general manager was out at the NSAA bike park summit in park city. So he is definitely, you know, it shows a commitment that, you know, I started to see what other resorts are doing too. Yeah. Yeah. They're into it. I'm, I'm excited to see that place go. I'm, uh, I think it's going to be really good for him. I think they're not only drawing from Chicago area, they also, you know, Des Moines, Des Moines, Nebraska, like all those places that there is no, I mean, even up into Rochester, Winona, La Crosse, you're like on that cusp of like, it's the same elevation profile as spirit. I mean, you don't, or giants really almost more so. Yeah. And so I'm, I'm excited to see him, to see him give it a, a solid whack at it. I think they're gonna be good. Well, before I wrap this thing up, do you want to drop any words of wisdom there from Adam Buck and where we can find you? Oh yeah. Uh, you can find us at, uh, Pathfinder trails on Instagram. And I would just say, keep those stoke birds a chirping, but thanks for having, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. For sure. Love listening to the podcast. Well, thank you for carving out some time out of your uh, Friday afternoon to do this, because I know it's as the season starts ramping up, time is time gets a lot tighter. Yeah. We always got time for this stuff. (laughs) I hope you enjoyed the conversation with Adam. Later this week, we'll be dropping a throwback Thursday episode featuring Kyle Horvath the Director of Tourism for White Pine County in Ely, Nevada, as we get ready to kick off the 2023 International Trail Summit in Reno, Nevada. If you like what you've heard, please take the time to share these shows with others. Sharing these shows will help create awareness of both the guests who have taken the time to be on the show and the podcast series itself. If you listen to the Trail Effect Podcast on Spotify or Apple Podcast, please don't forget to leave a rating and review, as this is one of the best ways to show your support for the Trail Effect Podcast. Also check out Cooley Creative at www.dojustsendit.com. Yes, that's right. www.dojustsendit.com will get you to the Cooley Creative website. I'd like to thank all of the listeners who have signed up to be supporters of Trail Effect through Patreon. These actions mean a lot to me. With that, the value for value concept is something that has caught my attention. If you find value in the Trail Effect podcast, you now have a way to provide value for that value via Patreon for Trail Effect. For additional ways to support the Trail Effect podcast, check out the affiliates link on the Trail Effect website by using the affiliate links found at www.trailfectpodcast.com. A small commission will come back to the podcast, which helps keeps this thing going. This podcast has been edited and produced by Evolution Trail Services. Thank you again for listening. <laughs>